My sermon Sunday was about the difference between the Old and New Testament, the Old Testament fading away in glory, even though it came with glory. You know, the uh, explosive thunder and the earthquake and the lightning and the trumpet blasting and God speaking the Ten Commandments in the thunder to the Jews in the 19th chapter of Exodus and then writing it on tablets of stone in the 20th chapter comes with great glory, but it fades. And Paul says we are just the opposite, that we begin small and we grow and we become more and more glorious as time goes on. He says, we're going to get to this in Second Corinthians chapter 3, that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another until we become like Jesus. The word transfiguration, metamorphosis, is used two times for Jesus in the Bible and two times for us. Uh, Romans 12, 2, and 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. So now we're at 1 Corinthians. And I want to hit the, the high spots of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians has two parts. And the two parts are very clear in the Greek text. It doesn't show up quite as well in English, but the first six chapters are problems in the Corinthian church. Division. They divide over who their favorite preachers are. They divide over who baptized them. They divide over moral issues. Uh, they divide over sexual issues and problems. And you can read chapters 5 and 6 and see that in chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says, Deliver this man over to Satan because he is sleeping with his father's woman. Uh, it could be father's wife. It could be his own mother. It sounds like it is because Paul says this is the kind of immorality that's unknown among the heathen, you know. And yet here this guy is doing it in the church, and the church is bragging about it. He said you should be ashamed, not bragging. And so he said deliver him over to Satan, kick him out of the church, in hopes that his spirit will be redeemed in the day of the Lord. So he's kicked out in chapter uh, three, no, chapter five, I'm sorry, of first Corinthians. But then in second Corinthians and chapter two, he is invited back in. Paul says, welcome him back. He suffered enough. You know, in those days, you kick somebody out of the church, they don't go down the street to the Baptists. There's only one church. And so when you kick somebody out of the church, he is de-churched. I've been involved in only one situation like that where we had to kick one of our elders in the church in Illinois, had to kick him, kick him out. And uh, he, he left on his own. He wasn't ready to be kicked out. He just left. And he would never showed up again. I went and tried to talk to him two or three times, took people with me to talk with him, wouldn't even let us in, wouldn't even talk to us. 
Well, the Corinthian church had problems. In chapter 6, they're going to court against each other before pagan judges. Uh, Nathan Hecht, who is the head Supreme Court justice, he's the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Texas. He's a friend of ours. And I saw in the paper that Nathan was going to be meeting with Denton Road Church of Christ, the leaders against the people, and uh, that they were coming before him in court. And I said, what are you going to do, Nathan, for those Church of Christ folks? He says, I'm going to read them from the book. And he opened 1 Corinthians and read the passage that said, you are a blot on the name of Jesus. He didn't do it in court. He did it in his chambers. He invited them all into his chambers, and he came down on them like God would. And they were like sheep with their tails between their legs. And they, he said, go down the hall. I don't care how long it takes. Solve this problem. And they did. And they finally said, we will take a vote and abide by the vote. And they did. Uh, glad they got him because he knew the word. He's an elder in the church where we were for many years. Then here you've got this phrase that shows up in Greek. In English, it would be peride. In Greek, peride, it means now about, or now concerning. And what happened was the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter, and they asked him a bunch of questions. And so in seven one, he says, now concerning marriage. And he talks about that for 24 verses. In 7.25, he says, now concerning the unmarried. Now, here's the culture of that day. A man and a woman are going to get married. They have a six-month period where they live together without sex. As a trial marriage is what they did. This is where uh, Joseph and Mary were when she was found to be pregnant. There were four levels of engagement, the last one being married. But the third level of engagement, you live together without sex. You do everything married people do except no sex. And in a, in a sex-saturated culture like Corinth, that was a very difficult proposition. And Paul says, if you are sexually attracted to the virgin you are keeping, they must marry. It's a command. For it's better to marry than to burn. Okay? So you don't have to wait the six-month period. That's just a cultural thing. It's not necessary. And so 7.25 is about the unmarried. 8.1. I have to look at that one. I thought I knew, but look at chapter 8, verse 1. Yeah. Idol sacrifices. Now concerning idol sacrifices. So you got marriage, then you got the unmarried, then you got idolatry. 
And Paul is telling them, eat what's put in front of you. If you're going to somebody's house and he serves you, you know, meatloaf or steak or whatever, eat what's put in front of you without asking questions. But if he says, this meat is sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it because you might cause another Christian in the group to sin. Because some people see demons, see idols as actual demons. And there may be demons behind them. So he says you don't eat at the table of the Lord and the table of demons at the same time. So avoid idol sacrifices. And under this heading, he talks about worship. That they are not to worship the way the idolaters do. The women must cover their heads. See, women in that culture up on the Acrocorinthus, I don't know if you know about this, but uh, Acrocorinthus means the high Corinth. There was a mountain that would take a full day on a donkey to get up on top of it. And on top of that mountain is a huge temple of Aphrodite. If you know anything about Aphrodite, you know she's it's all about sex worship. This is what they did. You've heard the word hermaphrodite probably. Well, that's what Aphrodite was. I have a picture of her. She is rising up out of the male sex organ. She has a beard and multiple breasts like a dog. It's a really sick form of worship. They have homosexual men with long hair. Uh, the word Paul uses is malakoi, which means soft or limperist. And these are up on the mountain. And then there are up to 2,000 prostitute priestesses. I call them priestitutes uh, up on that mountain. Up to 2,000 during the time of the Apostle Paul. And people would go up there just to fornicate. And they had timers, gongs and cymbals that Paul talks about in chapter 13 uh, as timers to switch partners. Uh, it was a horrible culture. Almost all the ancient world was like this. When the Jews took over the Holy Land back then, called the land of Canaan, the Canaanites were all idolaters. They worshipped Baal, Baal. And Baal means owner, husband, or master. This is why God hated that worship. Uh, they believed that Baal was a, and he was a sex object, and then Asherah, the female, was another sex object, the two together. Uh, and they believed that if they had sex in their gardens, the garden would produce more. And so the Jews pick up all that stuff and start doing that. That was the problem that sent them away to captivity in Babylon. God said, we got to get rid of these idols. And uh, Isaiah said, to the moles and to the bats, throw them out to the blind creatures. Don't you people worship them. So worship, what kind of worship's going on? The women shaved their heads as a phallic symbol. And so some of them had become believers. And they joined the church. And they wanted to control the worship here just like they controlled the worship up on Acrocorinthus. They had been speaking in tongues in Corinth for over 600 years before the gospel got there. 
their speaking in tongues was based on idol worship. And there was a woman there called the Corinthian Oracle who would have sex with an urn and a demon would enter her. And she would froth at the mouth and say all kinds of things. And then when she came to, she would interpret what she had said. And so, basically, they were doing the same thing in the church. These idol-worshipping, bald-headed women were coming in and trying to dominate the church the way they dominated up there as, as priests. And Paul says they will not do that. Women, in fact, 1435... Women are not allowed to keep on speaking. Now, he doesn't say women are not allowed to speak. That's NIV translation, and that's not translation of what the text says. The text says they are not allowed to continue to speak. Of course they can speak. Chapter 11 says they can prophesy. It's okay for a woman to prophesy. S for the verb and C for the noun. Prophecy is a C. Prophesy is an S. So women are allowed to prophesy and pray in the assembly if their heads are covered, if they have hair, or if they put a veil over their head if they're bald-headed. You follow? Yes. Uh. There's a bunch of sources, but the main one would be uh, Leon Morris's book on uh, Corinth. Uh, there was a uh, book put out by uh, Will and Ariel Durant. You remember the ten-volume set on the history of the ancient world? Uh, this is Christ and Caesar. And Will and Ariel Durand are the ones that say there were up to 2,000 prostitutes, priestesses up on that mountain all the time. Uh, uh, William Baird, B-A-I-R-D, put out a book on Corinth. Uh, I think it was the culture or Corinth, Corinthian culture, something like that, where he went into the background of this. There's also a bunch of stuff on the mystery religions. Uh, you can look up Aphrodite worship, probably online, and find a lot of this stuff. So, these, these women were allowed, Paul says, they can pray or prophesy in the assembly if they cover their heads with a veil. That veil shows that they are under the authority of the elders of the church. So women can do anything men can do, as long as they're under the authority of the church. Uh, I know a lady who uh, was asked by the elders of a church to teach all the Sunday school teachers, and several of the Sunday school teachers were men. And she came to me and said, should I do this? And I said, the elders are the ones who ask you to do this. You're the best teacher in the church. So yeah, you can go ahead and teach the men as long as you're submissive to the elders. Does that make sense? So these these ladies were allowed to pray and prophesy. They were allowed to worship. They were allowed to speak, but they were not allowed to continually speak in tongues the way they had up above on Acro-Corinth. And so Paul says they are not allowed to keep on speaking. He uses the same exact word he used for the prophets 
a little earlier in chapter 14, the Greek word sigato, which means to find a stopping point and stop. The prophets sat in a circle, and Paul said one would receive a message from God, and he would stand up and begin to speak, or she would. And as this one was speaking, another one might receive a message. So he would stand, and when he stood, the first one must find a stopping point and sit down. So it's the same word used there for the prophets as it is for the women. Women are not allowed to dominate. That's basically it. Men aren't allowed to dominate either. You know, it's all about control and order in the church. This is what the whole thing is about. This is all under idolatry. But when you get over here to chapter 12, verse 1, it's now concerning, and all the translations insert the word gift. Now concerning spiritual gifts, but that's not what it says. That word's not in the text. Now concerning spiritual problems or spiritual matters. It's a neuter word that's plural. Spirituals. And so it's going to talk about women in church. I've got an article, if you're interested, a one-page article on women in the church. Um, And I try to look at all these scriptures that are misused and misinterpreted uh, and try to clarify things. I had to do it for myself, so I tried to write it out so other people could get it too. So now concerning spiritual matters, and the word gift isn't mentioned until verse 4. Spiritual gifts, talking about supernatural abilities, speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing, uh, supernatural knowledge, supernatural faith so as to remove mountains and so on. So now concerning spiritual matters, and Paul makes it very clear in verse 3, you cannot say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. Chapter 12, I mean, uh, chapter 12, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians You cannot say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. And this means that our confession comes from God and not from us. And so if you want proof you have the Holy Spirit, all these spiritual gifts don't matter. The proof that you have the Spirit is that you say Jesus is Lord, that this is your life confession. And when you get to 12.13, he says, By one Spirit, we were all baptized into the one body, the church, and made to drink of that one Spirit. So the Spirit and the, and the water image together works all the way through the Scripture. It starts in Genesis 1, verse 2, with the Spirit brooding over the waters. And from that time on, Spirit and water are connected all the way through the Bible. When Jesus is baptized, he doesn't need to repent. He doesn't have any sins. He doesn't need to be baptized, but he wanted to do all that was right. So he was baptized, and when he was, the Spirit came down. Now, he was already born of the Spirit. But now you've got the Spirit coming down in a fuller measure on him. And John says he had the Holy Spirit without limit. Difference between him and us. We limit the Spirit. We choose what parts to reveal to the Spirit. 
So, you can't say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. This is the early church's simplest creed. Jesus is Lord. When we get later on over in 1 John, we're going to discover they had to add to that. Because false teaching took that and misinterpreted it. We'll talk about that when we get there. Well, chapter 12 at the end, he lists the nine gifts that the Spirit gives. And those gifts are lined up there, starting with apostle, prophet, teacher, worker, miracles, and so on. And the last two gifts are speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. And then in chapter 13, he says, tongues will cease on their own. Prophecies will stop because they are fulfilled. But tongues will stop on their own. If you look at the early church, you see that the only people who spoke in tongues or prophesied or received these supernatural gifts were people that had the hands of the apostles laid on them. No one else received those miraculous gifts. When in chapter 8 of Acts, when Philip went down and baptized the Samaritans, they received the Holy Spirit, but Luke says the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them, meaning that miraculous outpouring. That's, that's his technical term for the outpouring of the Spirit. Peter and James, Peter and John found out, went down, laid hands on them, and they received the supernatural gifts. So the gifts have to be given by an apostle. And Paul was there. And the Holy Spirit decides who gets what gifts. And no gifts are more important than any of the others. But the least important, Paul says, is speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. Interpretation means translating. In other words, you speak in a language, and then you translate that language. And that's the original meaning of speaking in tongues. The purpose of it is to witness to unbelievers who speak another language. You know, if you had the gift of language, a tongue in the Bible means two things. This, the little red devil behind the pearly gates, and then the other is a language. And so these are people who spoke foreign languages without ever learning them, and they were able to spread the gospel to people who spoke those foreign languages uh, miraculously. Can you imagine, I mean, if you were an Arab and you spoke Farsi and you were standing on a street, some American came up, greeted you, and began speaking to you in your language. It's like he'd grown up there. And the guy doesn't know what he's saying, but he's telling you about Jesus and the gospel in your language. I mean, that, that would be a sign for unbelievers, and that's what Paul calls it. Then chapter 13, thank God for chapter 13. Wonderful chapter. The problem with the Corinthians, you read the first chapters of all Paul's books, he judges every church on three categories. He judges them on faith, hope, and love. You go to the Ephesian epistle, he says your faith is known throughout the world and your love for all the saints. And then he says, I'm writing 
that you may know the hope to which you have been called. Uh, to the Thessalonians, he talks about faith, hope, and love in the opening of both of his Thessalonian letters. He talks about faith, hope, and love in Philippians and Colossians and Philemon and Galatia, all of them. He judges them on that. Well, the Corinthians, in the first chapter of Corinthians, he says, your faith and your love and your hope. But he leaves out love because they didn't have it. And that's why he wrote chapter 13. The incredible love passage that the Holy Spirit gives to people. Love meaning, here's the biblical definition of love. You find a person with needs and help them. That's what love is. Love is not feeling good about somebody or warm fuzzies or anything. Love is helping people. It's something you do. It's a decision of the will. And so Paul describes it in chapter 13. Beautiful, magnificent description. He says, faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest is love. And then 14 is the rules for the use of the gifts. And he tells you how to use the gifts. If you're going to use them in the assembly, for example, speaking in tongues, he said, I would rather speak five words with my mind in the assembly than 10,000 in a tongue. What good is it going to do to speak in a tongue if people don't understand that tongue? He says, don't do it unless you have a translator present. I had a friend that stood up in a Pentecostal revival meeting and said, Adonai lo You know, went on and on and on and went all the way through the 23rd Psalm in Hebrew and sat down. And it was silent for quite a while. And finally some old man stood up and talked about that that meant something about how women are supposed to dress. <laughs> so that was fake. And most of it is. Uh, there may be some cases where God does something that we don't, we can't explain. That's up to Him. But generally, most of it is just not reality. It just doesn't agree with what the Scripture teaches. So chapter thir- uh, 14 is the one that men always point to that women are supposed to be quiet in the assembly. But that means don't keep on speaking. And men aren't supposed to do that either. I probably do too much of that. And then chapter 15 is still under the heading of spiritual matters. And that's the resurrection. The passage that Paul says, if, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is empty. And we're still in our sins. His rising from the dead is absolutely essential. And then he asks the question that people probably ask him, What kind of body are we going to have in the next world? He says there's an earthly body like Adam's made of dust. And there's a celestial body, a spiritual body. We'll be more like the angels, he said. We will be um, glorious beings. We will be like the stars in the universe. And you can read that chapter 15 
Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. We have a dead Messiah. But with the resurrection, the world has changed. The greatest shock in the New Testament was the resurrection of Jesus. Nobody believed it. Everybody was going to go anoint the body. Nobody thought that he wasn't there, that he was he was risen already. It's a big shock. So chapter, one of the things that it says there, Paul says in the resurrection, the mortal, that's us, we're all death bound, that's what mortal means, moving toward death. The mortal will put on immortality. And the corruptible will put on incorruptibility. And death will be swallowed up in victory. And that's what the gospel teaches. So that's First Corinthians. Think of any questions you have and let me know. Now we're getting to Second Corinthians. According to Second Corinthians, there is evidence in most scholars' belief that Paul wrote four letters to Corinth. Some suggest that 2 Corinthians would be the third and fourth letter that, that is combined. And that in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, there was another letter. And there's some evidence for that in the text. Paul speaks of a letter that was harsh and uh, probably doesn't refer back to 1 Corinthians with that. But anyway, we have First and Second Corinthians in our canon. I don't know if you've ever wondered how the New Testament books were all put together. Um, the early church had no New Testament scriptures. In fact, for over 300 years, the early church had no New Testament scriptures. The, the Ephesian church had Ephesus, Ephesians. The Colossian church had Colossae. The Roman church had Romans. The Corinthians had first set Corinthians. You see what I'm saying? So they got these things, and then finally, they began to compare them and put them together. And uh, Athanasius, a great scholar at the end of the 4th century, in 367, put out an Easter letter where he listed... These 27 books that we have in our New Testament and about 20 others that are reader, it's okay to read, but they are not authoritative the way our 27 are. And the church father said, now wait a minute, one man can't choose which books belong to the canon. And so they got all the bishops together. One of the early fathers said the roads were filled with galloping bishops. And they all came together, and they all asked the question, which books are accepted as authority in the Western church that spoke Latin and the Eastern church that spoke Greek? Which books are accepted as authority? And they ended up deciding that these 27 that Athanasius had listed in his Easter letter are the ones that are accepted as authoritative in all the all the churches. Now, some of the churches accepted First Clement, written about the same time John wrote. The Eastern churches accepted that. 
the Eastern churches accepted um, uh, the Epistle of Barnabas. And there were some other, there were 5,000 letters floating around. And out of those 5,000, these 27 were distilled as acceptable in all the churches, East and West. So it's good to read things like First Clement. It's good to read the early writers, the other churches' uh, letters. I recommend reading the Didache. Now, the Didache is a teaching of the Twelve written between 50 and 100. And then the second half of it is written between 100 and 150 to teach people the Didache that was written earlier, the teaching. Didache means teaching. So, 2 Corinthians. Um, 2 Corinthians has two major sections. Ministry and taking up an offering for the saints in Jerusalem. What happened in Jerusalem is that the Jews who became believers all got together and shared things in common and worshipped the Lord together. And the Apostle Paul, when he realized that the Jews who were unbelievers were putting pressure on the believing Jews to reject Jesus and go back into Judaism, they ended up uh, foreclosing. The, the Jews, Jews are bankers. They still are bankers. And the Jews ended up foreclosing on the houses of the believing Jews in Jerusalem. And then they also owned the businesses and fired the Jews who were working for them who were believers in Jesus. So you got all these Jewish people with no income and no homes living in the streets of Jerusalem, staying with relatives or grouping together in one house. And they need help. And Paul goes all over the world raising money for the church in Jerusalem to get these people back on their feet. And he raises huge amounts of money. And when he travels, he has to take about 20 people with him for protection wherever he goes with all that money. The first part of the book up to about chapter 10 is about Paul's ministry, and it's about the ministry of the New Covenant versus the Old. And we talked about this Sunday. The old fades, the new brightens more and more all the time. And in chapter 3, you see that most clearly. He talks about Moses' face fading and the Old Testament fading away, but we are the opposite, he says. We, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the Lord, becoming transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is one of the two places in Scripture where the word transformation, metamorphosis, is used for us. <clears throat> and in chapter 4, the old man's wasting away, the outer self, the physical is wasting away, but the inner man, the spiritual, is being renewed according to the image of the Creator. 
In other words, we're becoming like God on the inside. This is how Jesus could call us gods. And in chapter 5, he tells us we have a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation just means making friends. You know that. If a man and his wife are reconciled after a separation, they've made friends again. Uh, The Apostle Paul says God was in Christ reconciling the world, not the church, the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and giving to us the ministry of reconciliation. So our job is to go out and tell people in the world, you're forgiven. Christ died for you. It's always good news. It's never bad news. Turn to Jesus and be saved. And then on through... The first nine chapters is about Paul's ministry. Chapter 10, he starts talking about the offering. Chapter 11, he talks about false apostles. False apostles. He says uh, that these are evil people. They are very much like Satan. They appear, Satan appears as an angel of light. But in reality, he is rotten and corrupt, and these people are like that. And so Paul says, make sure you listen to the true apostles, not to the false ones. And then chapter 12, he goes into his experience, all the sufferings. Shipwrecked three times. You know, I don't know anybody shipwrecked once, do you? Shipwrecked three times. Beaten with rods. Four times beaten with 39 lashes by the Jews. Stoned and left for dead. I mean, imagine going through all this and still continuing to preach the gospel. And he says on top of all of it is his concern for the churches. Above it all. All the beatings and everything else he took. Above that is his concern for the churches. He wonders what's going to happen after he dies. And so when he writes Timothy, he says, teach other men like yourself so they can continue to teach others also. So pass, pass it on. All right, any question on that? We'll speed on. Got a lot to cover. Galatians, man, it's going fast. Galatians is a commentary on Romans 5 through 8. My students, I have them read Romans 1 through 8 seven times. During my class, they have to read it all the way through and write down any questions they have. And then I tell them, if you get really tired of reading chapters 1 through 8, read Galatians instead, 1 through 6. And they will, and they begin to see that Galatians is saying basically the same thing that Romans is. It's all about grace versus law. 
I have known many legalists. I have been in churches where I have been judged for my views by legalists. I have had letters written to the school where I teach questioning my loyalty to the party line. Because my view is academia allows me to chase down every rabbit that hops up. In other words, I want to know the truth. I don't care if it's Baptist or Buddhist. I want to know what's true. And when I find something that's true, I present it. And some people get all bent out of shape because it doesn't agree with their party line. Well, this is the way it is with grace. Grace is free. The Apostle Paul says, For freedom we were set free. But the people who follow law... See, the Apostle Paul had preached in Galatia. He had preached, and many others had preached, in the center part of Turkey, right in the middle of Turkey is where Galatia is. And there's a big debate between the scholars on north and south Galatia, but it's irrelevant. The relevancy is that in Galatia, the churches were struggling because they were followed. He was followed, and all the others were followed by Judaizers. Judaizers are people that want to turn every believer into a Jew. They go in and say, Jesus isn't enough. The death of Jesus is not enough. The cross is not enough. The resurrection is not enough. You've got to be circumcised, too. You've got to follow the law of Moses. And they led these people into circumcision. Led them into going back to the flesh for justification. Galatians 5.4 Paul says, You began in the Spirit for your justification. But you have turned to the flesh. You have fallen from grace. You have been severed from Christ. Now, I know there are churches that teach you can't fall from grace. In fact, I had a couple in our neighborhood Bible study that helped me establish the Bible study. And we had 30 or so people coming and studying the Bible together. It was an incredible experience. But when I got to this passage in Galatians, they said, that can't be what that means. And I said, well, let me read it again. And I read it again. And they said, but that can't be what that means because we signed a creed at our church that says it's impossible to fall away. And I said, well, let me read it again. And they ended up quitting the Bible study. They were the ones that instigated the Bible study. But they quit it because the Bible disagreed with the creed that they were standing by. Hey, if you want proof that it's possible to fall away, that verse alone is enough. But Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, you got four kinds of soil. Three of those kinds produce fruit. One of them springs up and has life and then dies. And Jesus says, this is a man who receives the word with joy, but when trial or persecution comes, he quickly falls away. That word fall away, Greek word apostasia. It's apostasy. They fall away. In other words, it is possible to fall away. Also, sixth chapter of Hebrews indicates that. But So this passage right here, 
Paul says, I am so disappointed in you people that you have so quickly fallen away from the grace that I preached to you. You were won to Christ by the gospel, and now you've turned to something that's not a gospel. Something that's bad news. You've turned to the flesh instead of trusting the Spirit. And I'm sure it really shocked them to hear that. Because they believed these Judaizers, these false teachers that followed Paul wherever he went. They followed him into Thessalonia, they followed, uh, Thessalonica. They followed him wherever he went in the ancient world and tried to turn people aside. And Jesus, or Paul began warning the people about these people and reject them. They're false prophets. They're false apostles. So which is best, law or grace? Can you imagine trying to live by 611 regulations? I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. You know, that's only three rules. Can you imagine having 611? Now, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What? That's in there twice. Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk because the nations around you do that and worship of their gods. So you're not going to be like them. Don't cut the corners of your hair because the nations around you do that and worship of their God. Don't tattoo your flesh because the nations around that, around you do that. You know, don't be like those people. That's what God is really teaching His people. Be different. Be separate. Be my people. So, we want to live by this or do you want to live by this? Man, oh man. Those poor people in the Old Testament, the brilliant, scholarly, wise men who wrote the Psalms, David, 73 Psalms have his name. They wrote the Psalms because the law was breaking their backs. And they wanted a relationship with God that rose above the law. We sing a song about break thou the bread of life. There's a line that says, beyond the sacred page, I seek you, Lord. We've got to know God, Jesus and God beyond the Bible. John 539, Jesus says, you study the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but you won't come to me that you may have life. It's Jesus that gives life, not scripture. Yes, sir. Yeah. Can't dismiss it. We live by it. But we don't need to even think about it to live by it. We live by grace. We live by faith. And by that, we fulfill, Paul says, we fulfill the law by faith. And and everything we do to help others, love, fulfills all law. That's it. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. 
If we do that, we're fulfilling all law, Paul says. Yeah, it sums it up. It takes the first group that are vertical, your relationship with God, and the second group that are horizontal, your relationship with people. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, you know. That's it. That's good. Okay. So Galatians, I would suggest you read it just to get grace, just to see how powerful and wonderful grace is. So much better than law. Trying to live by law is devastating. The last one we'll do tonight, probably, is Ephesus. Ephesians. Now, Ephesians, in the manuscripts, in the Greek text, Ephesians are in brackets. It's in brackets because... Originally, this letter was probably written to the Laodicean church. If you look at Turkey, this is Turkey. This is where Ephesus was. This is where Laodicea was. Paul tells the Colossians, be sure to read the letter to the Laodiceans. Well, it's probably this letter to the Ephesians. Because the Laodiceans got it and sent it up up the road to the next up here, Thyatira gets it, comes down this way. There's seven churches here, all called the Church of St. John, because John established all of them. And Paul is writing a, a letter to Laodicea, but it ends up in the repository of scriptures in Ephesus, because Ephesus was the strongest church. Yes. Yeah, uh, you're right. Ephesians certainly was established, Ephesus established by Paul. Don't know about the others. But they were all called Church of St. John because he, I mean, he, he ended up his life there. In Ephesus. Yeah, he was during, Dio, uh, during Domitian's reign, John was kicked out of Ephesus to the island of Patmos about 30 miles offshore. Uh, my brother has been there and told me about it. He said there's a cave there that they say John lived in. And when he wrote the Revelation, he would come out on the beach and look at the sea and see all these things that God had had for him to write down. Well, the letter to Ephesians is actually probably the letter to Laodicea, but it ends up in, Ephes- in Ephesus. So the early manuscripts, and the word manuscript is always abbreviated this way, and the plural is abbreviated that way. We have 5,600 manuscripts of the New Testament. Plus, we have more than that. And most of the ancient ones do not have the word Ephesus in the first line. It's a blank. Because originally it probably said Laodicea, but then later scholars filled in that blank in the manuscript with with, uh, Ephesus. So look at the first verse. You'll see it says, To the saints in Ephesus, faithful... Let me see. To the saints in Ephesus... Faithful in Christ Jesus. So, all of us, 
All Christians are in two places at once. You see it there in that verse? These people were in Ephesus, but they were also in Christ. And if Christ is seated at the right hand of God, then so are we, because we're in Christ. And Paul says that in Ephesians. So I've got three-point outline. I won't tell you much about what I went through with Ephesians. I struggled with it for about five years. I translated the Greek text. Blew my mind. I read two two-volume commentaries. Marcus Bart's Broken Wall, Marcus Bart's Commentary, Stig Hansen's book on unity in the New Testament, everything to try to understand Ephesians. And I had all these ideas in my head, and one day somebody handed me a little book about that thick, written by Watchman Nee. His real name is Nee Toshang. And the book was entitled Sit, Walk, Stand. I I just love it when you can simplify things. And he simplified it. The first point is, we can do nothing to save ourselves. We sit. Paul says, in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, God made us alive with Christ. In other words, somehow, by our faith, we entered into Jesus on the cross. We were taken down dead with Jesus. We were buried with Him by baptism into death. So, in that tomb, we are lying there dead with Jesus, and God made us alive together with Christ. Are you looking at verse 4? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Christ. We experienced the the vital element, came to life in the tomb. We rose up with Christ. And then He says, And He seated us in Him, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, He can show us the glorious inheritance of His saints. Hmm? Romans 6 says the same thing. Buried, death, burial, resurrection. Here Paul says, made alive, raised up, seated in heaven. So it's already done. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those He predestined, He called. And those He called, He justified. And listen to this past tense verb. Those he justified, he glorified. Past tense. We're already there. He already sees us there. See, he doesn't have to go through time the way we do. He penetrates all reality. He is transcendent. He is Alpha and Omega. He sees us at the end and knew us from before the beginning. Amazing. Paul says that in Ephesians 1. He set us apart in Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. He knew us before our parents knew us. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, I don't understand that, but I believe it, you know. So we sit in the heavenly places. We've already won the victory. This is why at the end of the book, 
He says, stand. He says, stand four times. Stand firm then. Stand. Stand against the devil. Stand against his schemes. Put on the full armor of God. I wish we had time to go into that armor. It's fascinating. They had wooden shields, lightweight wooden shields, that were covered with leather, and they would soak them in water. And when they went into battle, these shields covered them from here to the top of their foot. They had 16-foot spears. They were copying the phalanx invented by Alexander the Great. Alexander's phalanxes were attacked in the Battle of Arbella by elephants. And they would just squat down, put the butt of their spear in the ground, the elephants would run up on the spear and die. And then they'd move. In the middle of that group, there were slingers and archers. And these guys, I mean, it was like a moving tank. They were outnumbered about a 100 to 1. They ended up wiping out the army of the, uh, the, Syri- the Assyrians at the Battle of Arbella. Alexander the Great, the great general. So four times he says, stand. We sit, now we stand against the devil. We sit because we've won the victory. We stand because we've won the victory. Watchman Nee says, Christianity does not begin with a do. It begins with a done. God did it. He says, we don't have to go anywhere. We have to keep the ground we're given. Because the Christian doesn't fight for victory. The Christian fights from victory. We got it made. This is why so many people don't believe because it's just too good a deal. It's so wonderful. Walk, the center part of the book, starting in chapter 4, 4 1 through 6 9. This is all 1 through 3, all of the, those chapters. This whole section here is the heaviest theology in the New Testament. The sit part. And then walk, we walk in love. He says, as dearly loved children, walk in love. Walk is used five times in this letter. Walk in ministry. Walk as a family. Walk in unity. And then stand against the Satan, against Satan. When Satan comes at you, the, all the items of armor that Paul lists are defensive. Even the sword of the Spirit. This right here is not the sword of the Spirit. If you refer to the Bible, you refer to it as Logos, the Word. But the sword of the Spirit is the spoken word. You have to have that memorized in here so it will come out. So when you face Satan, you quote a scripture to him. This is what Jesus did. Quoted Deuteronomy three times. And beat him. And Satan disappeared. Came back later. He always comes back. But if you have the word of God here ready to speak to him, You will beat him and drive him off. So the end of this book is just amazing. 
He talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is a spoken word of God. That's the only possible offense we have. It's really a defensive sword because the word for sword means a sacrificial dagger, sharp on both sides, kind of like the word of God. You grab a hold of that dagger, and that's for close-in fighting, and Satan can't handle it. Spoken word will drive him off every time. That's Ephesians, and we're out of time. You have any questions?